beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. to tell you. And you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves. And the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. This is an interactive podcast. Each episode has a prompt and a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to your best friend, or answer on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. I stumbled upon Kate Kennedy's podcast, Be There in Five, a few summers ago when I was looking for a deep dive on Taylor Swift don't exactly remember what drama that I was thirsty for, but I think I wanted to know more about the loss of her original masters to Scooter Braun. And I wanted to hear someone talk about Taylor in a smart way that wasn't total fangirl and also wasn't total disdain. So Kate Kennedy entered my life when I binged her multiple episodes with Taylor analysis that were thoughtfully researched and super insightful, really hilarious. And also, they were two plus hours long. Many, many hours of Kate talking into the microphone alone. And I was absolutely blown away. Because I've been in podcasting for years by this time, and I always follow podcast trends, and I read the how-to podcast articles, and Kate was doing something that I didn't see a single other woman doing. She was taking up space. 
Her episodes were unapologetically long. She left in the tangents. Sometimes the best stuff was in the tangents. And from the outside, it just looked like she was doing what she liked. It was that simple, but like, that's amazing. (laughs) Audience surveys and advertisers be damned. She was just doing it. And I still don't know any other show that is like Be There in Five with Kate Kennedy. Besides the Taylor content, which I am still here for, her other popular episodes include deep dives on Mormon mommy bloggers. There's a two-part series called Childless Millennial. It's really incredible. And once you're in the Be There in Five universe, you'll discover that there's an active Facebook group, a Patreon community, PowerPoint presentations. Like it is a world. And I just watch Kate in awe because it takes something really special to do what she does. And I couldn't wait to talk about it on 10 Things to Tell You. But this episode is actually a swap. I will be on her show, Be There in Five, this week talking about my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. We're just talking about sharing in general, actually. So please do go check out that episode where we talk about all kinds of things. But over here, I wanted Kate to talk a little bit more about this idea of taking up space on the internet with your ideas and leaning into your skill set, even when conventional wisdom tells you that it's a bad idea. She really speaks into some of my old insecurities about working on the internet and about what authenticity means. She just has some really good thoughts on these things that I will carry with me. I've really learned a lot just from watching her and then now, of course, speaking with her. So remember, after you listen to Kate and I talk here, we are talking about a whole different topic over on her show, Be There in Five. I'm not going to claim that it's as fascinating as her deep dives, but I hope that you enjoy both conversations with Kate Kennedy. Kate Kennedy, welcome to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thank you for having me. As you said that, I just realized I have five in my name and you have 10. Oh, that's so true. I think we have (laughs) quite a few similarities, but I think is one of the reasons that has always like appealed to me when I found you years ago. I think I was on some kind of a Taylor Swift deep dive. I'm not totally sure, but I'm almost positive. And then I started listening to your show and we're going to get into this more in a second, but you are doing something in podcasting and doing something in internet that I do not see other women doing. And it is mind blowing to me. And as I have followed you now for a couple of years, I just super admire it and super respect it. But for the listener of 10 Things to Tell You who maybe has not followed Be There in Five, can you just give us a little bit of your trajectory and how you got to be this like power podcaster? I just want to hear a little bit of your whole story in your own words, actually. Oh my gosh, that's so nice. So I started out out of college. I moved to New York for this corporate marketing job I was in for like six or seven years. And I really loved it. And I always want to vouch for vague marketing jobs because it's something I would have never like said I wanted to be when I was 10. But uh, I had a great time and I thought I would just stay in my career forever. And I've always been creative and a writer and into poetry and like 
I don't know, into doing crafty type things on the side, but I just was kind of enjoying unleashing my creativity in my corporate job. I had did a stint as a Six Sigma black belt, which is a very uncreative role toward the end of my corporate career. And I was feeling a little stifled. I needed a creative outlet. And in trying to problem solve one day, I painted turn off your curling iron on a doormat because be there in five, like I tend to run late. And I'm always uh, worried I'm going to burn down my apartment, a la Rachel Green and Phoebe's apartment. And I put it on Etsy because some of my friends thought it was funny in case somebody wanted to buy one. And a couple months in, an Australian radio station found a photo of one of the, the turn off your straightener mat on Pinterest, posted it, and it went viral. It had like 250 or something thousand likes, thousands and thousands of comments. It was like a legitimately, legitimately an original idea. And I thought, well, there's something interesting here. Doormats see you on your way in. They welcome you. Why not see you on your way out? Like I'm the one who lives here. So I started a company called it and called it Be There in Five. It's something that I think a person like me can relate to that is the best of intentions, but is just a little behind and needs help. I started making what I called Remind Doormats. And about a year and a half in or so, I had to quit my corporate job because like the demand was so high and I needed to figure out how to streamline the business. About two years into that, I kind of was like, I don't want to run a rug empire. Like I, it was like a, a wave I rode that was really exciting, but it was a wave wave I rode to ultimately become irrelevant from that previous job I worked so hard for. They wouldn't rehire me, so I had a low period of like not making money, not having a job, not getting hired, feeling like I just took on the world building this business, and yet I was obsolete. Um, and that's when I started the podcast, and when I wrote. A book. And in a weird way, I think that that kind of rock bottom forced me to get back to what I know and what I've always loved and uh, get back to basics. So I wrote a book called Twinkle Twinkle Social Media Star that's a parody of influencers. Like, what if a mother was telling their child how to be an influencer, like a firefighter or a lawyer, like many books do? And it's satire, but it has heart. And uh, at the time, I was feeling very inadequate on social media. So that's kind of an expression of my way to make fun of it in a sense. And I started this podcast. Uh, because when I didn't know what to do or where to go or how to make people interested in what I was doing, I just tried to do like uh, what I've always been doing that I didn't see anybody else doing. Right. So I've always read tons of pop culture news. I've always deep dove on the most random topics. I've always felt like I've had so many things I want to say, but nobody that shares my interests because they're kind of niche. So I just decided to say them out loud, start a podcast and keep other people company the way I so needed to, to be kept company during my tough time because I loved podcasts and uh, that was three years ago. And now here we are. But did you start it from a place of this is my new business? If you were at that low point or did you start it from a creative place and you to see where it would go? Like what was your mind space around starting the show? I think that like what the doormat experience taught me was like, the joy of experimentation for experimentation's sake. And that regardless of outcome, trying things is a good use of time. And I think you have to develop a tolerance to kind of the embarrassment of trying new things and then telling people you're putting yourself out there. And podcasting is kind of a gratuitous thing that's especially solo podcasting that's kind of hard to explain. But at that point, I had built up a tolerance to like trying stuff that probably wouldn't work out. I tried so many other jobs and things during that time. Um, that I, it came from a place of like, I really like doing it. Like I love talking about this stuff. I hate that pop culture is trivialized. I think it can be talked about and 
you know, sometimes shallow, but sometimes intellectual and analytic way. And I like really believed in the mission of communicating in a certain way I didn't see represented in like the e-newses of the world um, at the time in podcasting. And uh, that's typically when stuff works for me is that like, it's a joyful venture regardless of outcome. And that's really how it felt at that time. I was not in a good place. No, but I, that's what I kind of meant with getting back to basics. It's just talking uh, and doing it was something I just really loved because I love pop culture so much. Did you always plan to do it solo? I think at first it was more of like necessity. Like people aren't going to come on, you know, nobody's podcast. I couldn't have gotten guests if I tried while I was building, but I started to really appreciate the solo format. And I realized other people did too. I'd get really positive feedback on liking that it wasn't an exchange and liking that it was smooth and that it was different. I don't know. It's definitely looking back. I don't even know why I thought it was normal to do that, but I just don't think I knew anybody that I could co-host with. So I just tried it myself. Okay. Well, I'm asking those questions about it because it is truly fascinating what you do because, and I can say that like as a fellow podcaster, because by the time I started this show, 10 Things to Tell You. This is my third show. I was on a girlfriend chat show before, and then I was on an interview-based show that was like about learning and educating ourselves, which was super fun to do, but it was very produced. I mean, I produced it, P.S., but like it was very planned and had a really like a, a particular mission. 10 Things to Tell You is less like that, and most of my shows are also solo. But when I found your show... You were doing really deep dives on pop culture. I know you still do this. And you were also talking alone for a really long time. Now, you have a complete skill set and a voice that can do that and a brain that can do that. But truly, Kate, like I had only seen men do that. I had not seen a woman feel like she could take up that much space and I, like, I, I remember, t- I specifically remember texting other podcaster friends that I had at the time. I was at my lake house. Like, I remember this really well, sitting on the porch and being like, you guys have to go see what this woman Kate Kennedy is doing. Because I just, I was keeping my pulse on a lot of different kinds of podcasts and like the podcast world. And I hadn't seen anyone do that. And so this is a family friendly show. So I'll use the word guts, but it takes a lot of guts for you to do that. And I don't know if you saw it that way or not, or if you were just sort of like leaning into a skill set. but I just have to tell you, I admire it. And I wondered if you like, even, even if thought about it like that. I appreciate you saying that it means a lot to me. I don't, I don't think I, when I started, I wasn't aware that it wasn't common or that it, especially not for a woman, but as they got further into it, some of the negative feedback I got, uh, the net, the way that networks told me I would have to change to get brought on to their network. Like I started realizing like, oh, this isn't super, this is not for everybody. Like this is not a format people want. Uh, a lot of people want quick. A lot of people want co-host banter. A lot of people want guests. And I'm doing kind of, I'm going against a lot of best practices here that I started out of necessity, but kept going because I was trying to listen to the positive feedback. And I think Anytime you're doing something different, you do have to ask yourself, like, is it wrong? Because diff- different isn't always wrong. And some of the agencies, as it started to get bigger, were like, we'll take you on, but it needs to be 45 minutes and it needs to have five ads. And I'm like, 
that's not that, that's not what it is. That's not who I am, and that's not empowering my voice. And it's an interesting way to put it because yeah, when you think of like the Rogans of the world, they talk for hours and hours and hours on end. Nobody cares. His, his catalogs were a hundred million dollars that Spotify bought it for. Like, but I come on and talk for an hour and a half, two hours, and people are like so rambly, so full of herself. So like never stops talking, needs to be more concise, needs to be shorter, da, da, da. But I got to a point where I was like, it's not for everyone. And that's fine. I'm, I'm, I want to be a podcast that keeps people company. I want to show up and stay a while. I want to like, I don't want to be a quippy, highly edited, you know, fast version of something. I want to be like a warm, long conversation. And it definitely didn't really do much for me uh, in terms of advancing my career in a traditional sense of how the industry is set up. But I think it helped me grow a really strong community of people that know me so well, because they listened to me talk for so long. And beyond that, I think that it is an interesting thing where people are more sensitive to how long a woman talks, the volume of her words, her, her tone. It's judged in a completely different manner. And it's something that I don't really think I knew until I experienced. But uh, I guess to answer your question, I think I had de- honestly developed such a tolerance to doing weird, almost embarrassing things like starting a doormat company or writing a book about social media. Everything I had done in recent history was like, what you're doing what? And I just kind of didn't care anymore. And I think that had I not had that tolerance, I would have been a little bullied out of it by how many people were harsh on me about rambling and how the network said like this format doesn't work. I think that's why I was like so taken with it. Well, first of all, I mean, from a pure entertainment standpoint and content wise, I was really taken with the topics you were talking about. Like I could listen to you talk about these things for a long time. And that is just, isn't true for everyone. I mean, obviously like you're funny, you're articulate, your voice is nice to listen to. I mean, you had a lot of things going for you that made me want to listen to you, but it also made me realize in a little bit of a way of thinking like, God, I have absolutely been, I wouldn't use the word bullied, but I have definitely been um, susceptible to like the ideas of what works, you know, on social media or on my blog in the day or on my various podcasts of like, here's the formula or here's the standard or like, here's what audiences like that. I am really influenced by that in a way that I don't want to be. And in a way that I actually am not in other parts of my life, like in fashion, in home, in, um, our family, like in other things, other parts of my life that don't live online, I, feel like I have a lot of confidence or I feel like I follow my own North star or whatever. Like I don't care about those things, but I've worked online for a long time now. And for the most part, I've worked alone. And so I haven't had anyone to bounce ideas off of, or I haven't had anyone to say like, let's do it anyway, or whatever. You know what I mean? Like if I was going to buck a system. And so it's, when you're working alone and you're getting immediate feedback because it's online work um, and then you're going to blog conferences and you're reading forums about how to start a podcast and like all these, all this content I was taking in about how to be online. Like I realized how much I had fallen into that and how I hadn't really let myself just talk about what I wanted to talk about or structure the show the way I wanted to structure the show. And listen, I love this show and I love the way that it has worked out over the years, but just like seeing another woman just do it 
like unapologetically and very well. Like it has been, it's like, it means a lot to me actually to watch you do it. And so I kind of just wanted to like say that publicly, not to mention the fact that I just love your shows and your deep dives. They're so You're good. so nice. Like that, that's, that, that's really cool. And it, it that's helpful to me. Cause yeah, working alone, it's, it's hard to keep you. I don't know. I think that's the other piece too. Like I think in not having another, I would have benefited so many times from having someone to bounce things off of, but it forced me to do exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you add somebody else into the dynamic, you kind of are modifying what you're doing in a sense, just because you're a team. And I think there's something about like, I would try to make them shorter. I would try to produce more. I would try to have on more guests. And it just, I think that yeah, older you get too, you just kind of like, like what you like. And when things don't feel natural, you're less inclined to put so much energy into trying to make it work. And I think I was just always drawn to something that wasn't popular, but I've tried to, I don't know. I'm here for the long game. Like, I just don't think anything anymore, building an audience of any kind just takes a really long time. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people, when things don't work, it's, it can be a patience factor unless you're go absolutely viral a lot of life is a slow burn, a slow build. And like, I'm okay with that. I'm a, I'm a little more Burr than Hamilton in that sense, if you will. <laughs> I'll wait for it. <laughs> but I also think there's something to be said for leaning into your strengths, which my husband and I talk about this a lot because he also, when he was making Jackass, was told a million times, like, this is just like people standing in a backyard, like holding a camera, like anybody can do this. It's like the Jackson Pollock of TV, like, you know, that's just splatter paint, like anybody can do this. It turns out actually anybody cannot do this. But he has also throughout his career had to just go with what he thinks is funny or what he thinks is good or what he just likes spending his day doing. He then just makes that somehow into his work. And I don't have that tendency to just like lean into what my strengths are because I'm always trying to like make up for the fact that I have no formal marketing training or I have no formal whatever. And so I'm trying to like be like, looking up YouTube videos for someone to teach me how to do it. And then I follow their advice, like with good intentions, but it's just not always the the right fit. And the only exception I will say that for my own self that I have done this and is recently also as I'm getting older is for my book, Share Your Stuff, I'll Go First. I tried originally to write like sort of long form essays and I just was like, I mean, I like texted my agent and I was like, I don't know how to do this. Like I've never Mm -hmm. written a book. I don't know how to write a book. I'm used to writing 500 word blog posts, 200 word Instagram captions, like, and I've gotten really good at that actually. And so my (laughs) skill set is actually to write these little vignettes. And so um, I had to fight with the one part of my brain that was like, but that's not a book. You can't make a book of Instagram caption things. And I didn't want to because that's a different sort of critique. We've all seen bloggers or online creators who who try to take their online work and make it into book form. It just doesn't quite translate. So I have that fear also. But what I ended up doing, I ended up being really happy with this structure and how it turned out was I was like, look, I write short form right now. I really hope that I exercise this muscle and learn 
you know, to maybe be an essayist, but I'm not right now. And I have a book contract right now. So Mm -hmm. I am going to write what I know, which is I took each chapter and I broke it down into these shorter form things that I knew how to do better. And when I released myself of all of these things that I had in my mind of what a book should be and what a real writer should write like, and like what all of that kind of thing, when I let all of that go and I just wrote how I write, which is sounds like, you know, what you were saying too, like you just do your thing. The book flowed. So it, it was better written. Like my sentences were better. Everything about it was better. And so even though I turned it into my editor and I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is like what a book is, but this is how I write. And like, here it is. And sure, we had to tweak it and and make some things a little more like book style. But in the end, I was really happy that I just leaned into my strengths instead of on the fly trying to figure out a new skill set, which is being a long form writer. I'm not a long form writer. And I think I told you when we recorded my podcast, like I, I noticed that about your book, like structurally it's different. I love the concept of it. I love the inter- interactivity of it. I, I love that you made it about you and the reader. And like, I pay attention to stuff that's different in a good way. Like, because I, I agree with the SAPs. Like I've struggled with that too. And I'm in the process of trying to figure out my next steps as a writer. And I, and, and that's kind of such a mind cluster, if you will, of really needing some sort of permission or validation to allow yourself to do what you're naturally inclined to do and good at. And I think that's really cool that you kind of turned in something that they didn't initially like ask for in a sense. But the thing is, you were proud of it, right? And you knew it was good because it was what you wanted. And when you do it well, I mean, because we're also talking about something like skills that we've honed over time. I mean, you've now been podcasting for years. I've now been writing short form for years. And even though it was like unconventional, everybody agreed like, okay, this works. Like on paper Mm. or theoretically, had I pitched it this way, Mm. like this will be blog post length vignettes. They would have been like, "Mm, I don't know. I mean, I sort of had to do (laughs) the work and then show it to them. And and then everybody could see like, oh, I see what you're doing here. And it does make sense. It's not like so out of the blue. So you do these episodes a few times a year, I guess, called Kate Lila. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So bad. Doesn't roll off the tongue. (laughs) I know, but when I see it in my feed, it makes me laugh. So it's a riff on Delilah, you know, the like. Like an adult contemporary, like like nighttime radio host. She just gives advice in a soothing, dulcet tone, makes people feel, she never judges anyone. I just grew up listening to this to her and I just thought like, wow, what a great gig. (laughs) I love it so much. So you have listeners um, give you questions and then, and then you answer them. And on a recent episode of Kate Lila, a listener asked you about the fact that you are really open talking about your mental health and, you know, a lot of things that you talk about on your show and did your parents, who you have a good relationship with that you've also stated multiple times, but do your parents, when they listen to you talk about those things? Like, does it make them sad or does it affect your relationship? And I thought that your answer there was so interesting because I'm not going to try and sum up your answer, but the part I'm getting to here is that you said you're a really different person, not a totally different person, but you're a different version of yourself with your parents than you are when you're on the podcast chatting into the microphone. And I loved that you said that because for people who are online as like their real selves and being authentic all the time, the fact that you 
sort of normalized, like, you know, when I'm around my parents, I don't talk like this, right? But it's not like any less me. You're right. Right. And I I wondered if you could say more about like sort of the different versions of yourself when you have this life where your entire gig is talking about yourself and your opinions on the internet, but that that does not, that's maybe not how you talk to your husband or your parents or your real life friends. Like, yeah. No, I, I, I think about this a lot just in terms of how we can contain multitudes and it all be exactly who we are, but just take on different forms. Like I talk literally nothing. I talk, my husband doesn't even know what I'm podcasting about that week. It's a very separate world, which I kind of like, cause I don't bring like work home if you will. But part of the reason I started this is cause I didn't have people that wanted to dive like this and the internet's where niche thrives. But with my parents, like, yeah, I think I said, um, I love and respect my parents, but like, I don't curse around them. I don't, I am respectful of them. I don't go into a lot of details about my life because uh, like, or I don't regress a lot through my life in person, I guess. And I think that uh, they got to know a side of me that's more colloquial, more informal. And like the joke is they know me so well, they know me better than anybody else, but you do speak differently to different audiences. And um, I think that at first it was an adjustment for my mom. Like she gets really upset with cursing, but I really like, uh, you know, uh, I like one for comedic effect now and again, or to get my point across. Um, but I know it upsets her and it, it's hard for me to like reconcile needing to like do what I want to do with not upsetting people in my life that listen. Um, but yeah, I think that it's fair for people to, uh, like, I, I just think the idea of like authenticity is it's oversimplified <laughs> And I always worry that people think I like, I'll tell a story two different ways, for example, in two different episodes, but like both of those things are true to me. And depending on the day and what I'm going through and how I'm looking at it, I think I mean what I say. And I think the same can be true for dynamics with people. And just like in your life, you have friendships. Like one of your friends thinks you're like the most confident, empowered person, but then like one of your friends who's a little bit more extroverted or strong-minded than you thinks you're like more docile and you're the version of you is less about you and more a function of your environment sometimes. Yes, totally. Do your friends, do your real life friends listen to your show or watch your social media and then want to talk about it offline? Or do you keep that pretty separate in your life? There's a, a couple of my close friends are very involved, like moderate the Facebook group, like uh, the ones that get it are. But kind of like I said earlier, in terms of the the thing I wanted to do was like a type of person I didn't really know, um, but I found online. I, I think like, honestly, a lot of my friends don't really get it. They they don't really think it's a real job. They don't really think that people listen. Um, I think that it's just, it's, yeah, it's fascinating trying to explain it to people. And if you're not a person that listens to podcasts or uh you kind of don't get it. And then if you listen to one of my episodes out of context, like one time, one of my friends told their coworkers to listen to my podcast, they went back to him and said, is this a podcast about dipping sauces? And he was like, certainly not. But indeed it was that week. I did a fun bonus episode during quarantine. Cause I was depressed about dipping sauces. Cause I wanted to laugh. And like, he was so mortified that he told them to listen. I was like, it's hard to explain. <laughs> so I actually hate when people I know really well listen. Cause they actually kind of don't know that version of me either. And it's a little uncomfortable sometimes because I'm putting so much of myself out there. But do you feel like 
a defensiveness about it. Like if you're at a party, when we used to could go to parties, if you're at a social gathering and like, do you feel like the need to explain it and defend it in some ways? Like if they're like, oh, because I feel sometimes like people are like, like pat me on the head a little bit to be like, oh, you have a little podcast. <laughs> and I want to be like, right. I don't, I'm not sure that you understand a few things about this. <laughs> like, but what I, do you say to make, to correct them? Like tell them how many downloads you, like, it's just weird. <laughs> yeah. You do, I don't want to like trot out the stats or like, you know I mean? Like that would be super <laughs> awkward and weird, but also sometimes I feel defensive. Sometimes I don't like just depending on my mood. Sometimes I'm just like, you don't get it and fine. I don't care. I don't get what you do either. Whatever. But Sometimes I feel a little bit like I don't want to be condescended to. It's one thing to be like, I don't understand like your investment job. Like, I don't know what investment bankers do or whatever. Like, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But to feel condescended to is when I start to feel defensive. Like, I don't think you understand. This isn't true anymore. I feel comfortable telling the story because it's a little bit of an older story. But when I had a blog and had a nice readership of that blog, I had a writer friend who was like a prestigious writer friend. Like, she wrote for like you know, intelligent magazines and things like that. And who oh, intelligent magazine, intelligent <laughs> magazines. Yeah, just trying to like, keep it vague. Right. And, um, and sometimes in social gatherings or even one-on-one, I, she wasn't necessarily trying to one up me, but I got the vibe, you know, that it was like a very condescending thing about my little blog, like her being a writer mm-hmm. versus me being a writer. And while I have no doubt, I mean, like, she studied writing and she was a, a, a very amazing writer, but I, it would just kill me to not scream at the party, like 10 times the eyeballs read my words than hers. And that wasn't like a braggy thing or whatever. I didn't necessarily care about the stats, but I was like, why am I being condescended to by a room full of people who don't, who don't really know, but I'm the one who has to bite my tongue about it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I know. I wrestle with this all the time. Cause like, when I hear other women's stories, I'm like, never apologize for your, your success. Tell people how well you're doing, blah, blah, blah. And when it's me, though, I do the same thing. But I will say something shifted with the podcast probably in the past year or two where I'm so deeply confident in it. And it's I'm proud of it and its quality and its audience. And when I'm deeply confident in something. I'm just less strategic about it. I'm less affected by opinions about it. And I think I used to over explain when people would question it almost in a way that I was guilty, but now I just kind of like shoulders back. I'm like, yeah, no, it's doing really well. A lot of people listen. Yes. That many people want to hear about Taylor Swift or whatever. There's they'd be like, why do you talk about that thing? Um, and then I just kind of stonewall a bit and move on because um, that stuff does really get in your head if you breathe life into it. And I think that people, people that so fundamentally don't get what you're doing, that they have the audacity to even approach you in that way, aren't going to be convinced in this passing conversation. And I think I've just learned to be so confident. I don't even entertain their dissenting opinion. Like uh, some days am I, do I feel weird about what I do? Like, yeah, it's hard to explain, but more often than not now, I think I've learned like you you literally can't do something public facing if <laughs> you let those things get in your head too much. It, it, it'll become completely debilitating. I agree. I also think it, this is played out in a long game. You mentioned playing a long game a minute ago, but 
that story I told was old, was from my blogging days when blogging was still very uh, looked down upon. And blogging still can have a little snark around it, of course, but I like nobody can argue anymore in 2021 that the internet is not changing the world, that the internet is not setting the tone and setting the pace like worldwide all the time. And that people who are making their living on the internet are like obviously very, you know, that it's a skill set. And so, I, you know, it's a different time now. That's why I sort of even mentioned that that story was older and that now in that same sort of social circle or that in the same conversation, I wouldn't, yeah, I would just be like, oh, like, well, you're the dumb one. Like, you don't seem to know how right. the internet works. <laughs> no, but it's important to share those stories because I agree. I, that, I, that's exactly how I would have responded. Um, and that didn't change till very, very recently till I got further in. And I think it's important to share both sides of the coin because it's, it's normal to be defensive and to want to explain and to want everybody to know that you're doing well and, and to let those comments affect you. They do me too. But I think that like, uh, there's a the broader thing I've learned in life. That's really helped me in doing anything I've ever done that I'm proud of is compartmentalizing feedback from who's my target audience and who's not. I, and I kind of a broken record with this, but like, I think people will let the opinion of their mom, their best friend, their spouse dictate something they're doing business-wise or creatively when those people aren't the end user, aren't the target audience. So just from a market research standpoint, their opinion is virtually invalid. <laughs> you need to seek advice about the demand for what you're doing from people who actually will consume it. And when I think about people's unsolicited two cents in that way, it kind of empowers me to compartmentalize in a way that I'm not affected by their opinion because I'm not making something for them. So of course they don't get it. Okay. I want to pivot a little bit from talking about your podcast platform to my book. (laughs) Please. I love your book. Thank you. Thank you. You're so nice that I was able to go on your show to talk about the book. And that was a super, super fun conversation, but to go from talking about like the business of podcasting for people who haven't heard from you much, I wanted you to answer a question or two just so we can get some insight into like you as Kate, as the human. I asked 10 questions in the book and I'm having some guests on to answer, give their versions of answers to their questions. And so I wanted to ask you, one of the chapters asks, when did you belong? And it's actually funny now that the book is out in the world and I'm getting actual reader feedback, which it's so weird to write a book and turn in a book and then the book doesn't come out for a year. And I'm like, right. I don't even know how are we going to react once it's out? I don't know. That was <laughs> right. a year ago. We've had a pandemic since then. There's anyway, no like, comment now- section. It's like would be social media so instant with the feedback and traditional creative ventures are so ungratifying in that way. <laughs> no, I, sometimes I forget what I wrote. I mean, I don't forget like the essence yeah. of what I wrote, but then I'm like, wait. Did I write that? Was that a blog post? Is that in my book? And then and then you feel like an idiot that you can't even differentiate. Anyway, but a lot of the feedback that I've been getting from readers is that the belonging chapter is like one of their favorites or the ones that, that really stands out to them. And I find that interesting to be myself because not that I didn't like what I wrote in that chapter. I did fine. But to me, it was not like the absolute most meaningful chapter. I write about my sorority. I write about my summer camp. These are both meaningful things to me, but in terms of everything that's in the book, there are more tender pieces to me. But for the reader, thinking about when they belonged has really struck a chord with people. And I think that's because we do have an epidemic of loneliness. And in adulthood, belonging takes on such a different 
form. You know, the, the places that we belonged when we were younger usually have some sort of institution behind them, a camp, a church, a school, a sorority, like some kind of umbrella thing that is dictating why we all belong. <laughs> And mm-hmm. then when we get to be adults, not that you might not have a church community or a work environment or something that, that also does that, but it's just different. You know, life is just different. And so I think when people are thinking these warm, fuzzy memories of when they belonged when they were younger and and then it might stand in contrast to that they feel like they don't belong in their spaces now. So anyway, it's pulling a lot of heartstrings. So I was wondering if you had an answer for a time when you felt like you belonged and like what it meant to you then and now. Yeah. That section struck a chord with me too, because I think that's what everybody is always seeking, right? That's strangely so hard to find is to feel really understood and accepted and like you belong in some. And I think the hard part is you don't always know where it's going to be till you experience it. So you can't always put yourself in the right circumstances to even attain that feeling. And that's kind of what happened for me and I've mentioned this before on the podcast that I went to high school and then I went to a state school where so many people I already knew, knew me. I, to your point, I felt very like spoon fed of a context, uh, every, like of where I was from, who I was friends with, who I dated, my sorority, my school, whatever. And I, and college was this really weird experience for me where everybody around me was having so much fun and everybody around me was like, they were so terrified to graduate didn't want to leave. Alumni would come back and be like, these are the best years of your life. Never graduate. And people were just, you know, at frat parties and socials and just like thriving. And I just, I just never was having that much fun. And it drove me crazy. And it, it to the point where I branded myself as not that fun, low energy. Like I just thought I was kind of a drag. Uh, the biggest thing for me was like sports. So like I went to a huge football school, people would be at these games and this was the highlight of their life like love, love, loved it. I'd go get snacks after the first quarter and like Irish goodbye, leave, go take a nap. Like I just never really wanted to be there. There was all these things that it's just confusing when everybody around you makes you think you're the outlier for not having fun and there's something wrong with you. And then when I got my first job and moved to New York City, something I never thought I'd do, I always wanted to do, but didn't think I'd be able to there was this one day I was like walking down like I don't know Lexington and like the you know very sex and city Chrysler building was in view and I was like listening to music and I was alone in a city I'd never been to around people I'd never met in a job I was terrified of and I was like this is my football game this is where I belong this would terrify so many people there's so many unknowns here but I've never felt more alive and I'll never forget that moment because while my context made me who I am that I'm proud of, I also needed to be shed of it to meet myself outside of the context and to figure out what I wanted and who I wanted to be. And um, yeah, that's just kind of an, a weird example of when I felt so at peace, despite being in a huge, scary place with a bunch of people I didn't know, yet I felt like me. Mm. I love that story because that's how I felt in Los Angeles too. I was lonely in Los Angeles. I've talked about my lonely years in Los Angeles, but at no point did I feel like I wanted to leave. Like I knew I was on the right path always. I was lonely in a very logistical sense and that like I like literally didn't have very many friends, mm-hmm. but I wasn't Same. lonely like in my spirit. Like I was like, oh no, I'm in the right place. Like I'm doing the right thing. This is all in alignment. I sort of just wish I was sharing it with more people, but this is like who I am, the mm-hmm. city. And yeah, yeah, 
it's, I think it's a lesson too. And like, you kind of grow up thinking life's pretty formulaic and almost like you can game it. And there's these just kind of cliches about what's supposed to be fun and important, like prom night, like graduation, like, you know, whatever it is, like uh, the getting married, having kids, like these life stages you think are going to be like one way and you're, you you never really factor in that you might not be having the time of your life when everybody else is that the cultural trope associated to this milestone is not true for everyone. And I just, I really was so depressed in college. I thought something was wrong with me, but like, I just, that was a valuable lesson in not needing to have the time of my life when everyone else is. And that different people will thrive at different ages in different relationships in different jobs. And you'll constantly meet different sides of yourself. Um, but that's the por- importance of like changing and shifting and growing. And I learned a lot when I kind of, instead of just trying to make something fun that wasn't, I tr- and trying to go out and find what was my, th- what was my football game? What was my thing? What, what brought me the same joy other people had. And I think that sometimes it's tough for people and like, high school or college, or when they first get out in the real world, when they're like, wait, uh, this is supposed to be something. (laughs) It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Do you feel a sense of belonging in your life now? I do. I do. I think that any like quasi relationships I was ever in before, I was very much like posing. I was like a, the version of myself, my, the, the, to, to make myself more likable or desirable to the other person. But my now husband, uh, I like don't fake an ounce of my being around him. I feel like my relationship is, is a bit huge reason of kind of, uh, being able to do a lot of these things I've done in the past 10 years, because even it's helpful to have a co-pilot in life, in life, in a sense, especially when I'm alone in business. I feel like I very much belong in this relationship and um, I just, he's just been a very supportive partner and I'm very grateful for that. And I think that I've never had a job that feels more me than the one that I have now. Do I trust its permanence or sustainability? Absolutely not. Uh, I I don't know what's going to happen, but like, it's very, I feel like very in alignment with the things I've liked since I was literally a child. Like I, I don't know. For me, things always kind of come full circle in a sense. We're in a horrible time in the world. So like, I don't think anybody really feels like they belong within the cultural and political climate that has been going on the past year. And that's been a source of torment, but I think career wise, relationship wise. uh, Absolutely. I'd say the biggest source of inadequacy is probably like all all my friends are now having their first kid. And it's like my relationships are rapidly changing with people whose priorities change, you know? That's where I don't belong. <laughs> yeah, that's a real stage. That's a real stage. I feel like I went through it on both sides when I didn't. Ha- I didn't have maybe till I was thirty, and most of my friends from Oklahoma had started years before that. And so then, so I didn't share that with them when they were going through it. And then when I went through it, they were you know beyond, like just in a different life stage. So I I felt that tension also as in several ways as that played out. Honestly. I think that phase is something people don't talk about enough. Like even uh, this term I learned called matrescence. It's literally like adolescence. It's the chemical changes your body undergoes after becoming a mother, like the extremity of like what women go through at this stage. And like, I just think it's really in, yeah, it's a fascinating disconnect of something I can't fundamentally understand because I haven't experienced. And I sometimes grow resentful of because it 
changes our relationship and I don't see people as much and I can't do stuff. And I, I just think that that's another example of something that a lot of people make seem so like joyful and simple, but is really complicated for a lot of women. And it's really hard to talk about. And, you know, some people are like, I've heard, I've had some people write in and be like, I'm an awesome parent to like a, a child over five years old. But like, I really struggled when they're babies and toddlers. Like I, but like now I'm excelling. And I just think it's interesting how like life isn't that straightforward. You do kind of thrive in different little pockets and you can't be too hard on yourself. And I think the idea of belonging, not to like over parse this, but when you're young, even a young adult, you feel this sense of belonging because you can very easily buy into anything hook, line, and sinker. So you're like all at the football game. That's like all consuming. You're all into your religion. That's all consuming. Your political party, your community, your school, your school pride, your, you know, career path. It doesn't matter. You can really be all in. And at a certain point, it's impossible to be all in. You're either too jaded or too life experienced, or you can just see more sides of the coin or whatever. It's really hard to be all in on anything. And so then when you're not all in, you know, if we learned about belonging, we think belonging feels this certain way, this all in way. And then when we get to a part where we're like, well, this isn't what belonging felt like to me when I was younger. And it can still be like, oh, but this is what belonging is in your forties is just all sharing a, a broader purpose or all sharing a general, you know, values or something like that. But it's not the, it's not the utopia that we put right. on belonging when we're at summer camp. Yeah. I mean, like we're just never going to recreate that. And that's hard. It's hard. It's just like part of the like, but I want to recreate that. You know, the movies tell me I can. Right. And uh, Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, I see that I can parse for, for <laughs> forever. So I'll cut myself off. <laughs> on your show, I shared a magical moment. I shared a few different stories on when we were on your show, but I love the magical moment question. I love hearing other people's magical moments. I just think that they're fun. I think they're revealing about a person of like what they hold to be magical. I think they're also just like flat out interesting if there were, you know, it's like some kind of metaphysical thing happened. I would love to hear from you a magical moment in your life that you are at least willing to share. I know these are actually kind of scary for some people to share. This one to me is just like, I've shared before, if you listen to my podcast, but it just, it's so meaningful to me in that if there was a dissenting opinion, it it would, it, it is so vulnerable because that would frustrate me so deeply to feel like that's taken from me. But at the same time, I'm so confident in what, you know what I mean? Like your magical moments, like you, they're real to you and nobody can take that. Right. And I think this is one of those moments that is just not debatable for me. Cause so long story short, I, um, growing up, I always did like crafts and knitting and sewing and like a lot of my creativity, a kind of source to my grandmother, we did these things together and she had this sewing box that was like this magical box with like everything you could ever need to do any craft. And I loved it. It's this really neat piece of mid-century modern furniture. That's kind of unique. And anyway, um, when I kind of did be there in five, the doormat business as a creative venture and was painting, I needed a logo and I had collected uh, random hanging hearts that I would see like all around. And I just thought they were pretty. And I started when I studied abroad and I'd pick them up in different cities, no reason, no meaning, just liked them. I put them on doorknobs because where else do you put something that's hanging? It just so happened that in when I'm photographing doormats, what's in a photo, a doorknob and the hanging heart. So I was like, well, that's in this photo that millions of people are seeing. Like I'll make this 
hanging heart, my logo. Then it kind of became this, and this all happened. So my grandmother passed away before any of all that, any of this happened. I forgot that piece. So then I would kind of start to see hanging hearts when I'd be at a crossroads, like the first time I ever signed a lease for like an office space. It was a scary, big overhead expense. And I went the day before and it was empty. The next day I came back, there was like a frame on the wall that says like, do what you heart. And it was like this big hanging heart. And I was like, that's so weird. And they were like, we don't know where that came from. <laughs> like that's, that's such a strange thing just for people to hear. Cause it's like, things don't just appear out of thin air, but I confirmed. And then I would see them like in different places when I kind of felt like I was barely hanging on. And there's like so many examples of when I saw these hearts. Um, long story short, during kind of that tough time I mentioned earlier, my parents had never, she in her will left me that magical sewing box many, many years prior. And I never went to get it because I have an 18 hour drive from my parents' house. They drove it to me one Thanksgiving. And um, when I opened it, uh, the very top, the one craft she saved me out of like the hundreds of things I've made her and with her over the years was a hanging heart from 1993. That's like the only thing she saved and the only thing she left. And she had no idea about the business, the hanging hearts, any of it. Like, what are the odds of that? Wow. Yeah. So that's always been really meaningful to me of like, and I'm kind of like understating how hard of a time I was having when I found that heart. <laughs> it was like a very overwhelming experience of like, it's actually right. It's actually hanging up above my door. Um, yeah, it was an important experience for me. And I, and I've seen them so many places since uh, when I need to, and it's in everything. That's all the big breaks in my career. Always the week of Valentine's day. That's when I got my book deal. That's when an agent came to one of my shows. That's when, I started the podcast. It's kind of a weird, like correlation thing with uh, hearts. <laughs> that's a really good story. And that's not one that anyone can take from you. That's not one that someone can like send you an article disproving or something like that. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's it, it's perhaps it's coincidence, but it's a pretty, you know, how many crafts and stuff kids make. It's like, at the end of your life, what's sifted through and you've saved? It's just kind of, uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay, well, tell the listeners where they can find you. I know after they listen to this conversation, they are going to want to go listen to your show and find you on social and all of the things. I've loved this conversation. I've loved both of our conversations together. They were so, so good. I just loved talking to you after having listened to you, having you in my ears for literally hours upon hours listening to you on your show. It's been so nice for it to be a back and forth. <laughs> oh my gosh. Likewise. I could talk to you forever. It's so fun. Yeah. And you'll be on my podcast. I'm not sure of the date yet, but be sure to, if anything, just go to the podcast to listen to Laura's episode, but yeah, be there on five podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the places at be there on five on Instagram, my books, twinkle, twinkle, social media star. And yeah. I think that's about it for self-promo. I'm so grateful to be on the show and to meet your listeners via their earbuds. I, I love the people that come from other audiences that I get to know uh, because I find that people I like and respect and at their job and have such a quality program, like their audiences reflect the host and I meet the nicest people and it's fun when people come over. So yeah, would love to have you. Tremaine, and you've just listened to the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. 
You can find the show notes and subscribe to episode emails at 10thingstotellyou.com slash podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. Remember, this is an interactive podcast. I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. So take this topic to your journal or a friend or post on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. These episodes are meant to bring connection with others and ourselves and spark better conversations. Thanks for listening. Now go share something.